Let us now go to our passage for this morning as we hear God's word. Pastor Bill will be preaching from Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 through 4, 11. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to, live, uh, to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 uh, persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. And today we are finishing up our teaching series in the book of Jonah. It's a book that is all about the nature of God's radical grace to people who don't deserve it, and it's about the many different ways that God extends that grace to us. Now last week we saw that part of God's grace is that he'll often put you into difficult, uncomfortable places that expose you. Places that show you the ugliness of sin that's inside of you, that show you the weakness of your faith to deal with it, he will change your world in ways that you don't like to show you things that you might not want to see. You say, well, Bill, how, how is that grace? It's grace because he does that for the pr purpose of helping you grow so that you'll be more like him and so that the impact that you have on the world will be more like his. That's what you see happening in the book of Jonah. God calls Jonah to warn the Ninevites, to love his enemies, to give himself to what's in their best interest. And what comes out of Jonah in that moment is not love, it's hate. But God does not leave his prophet stewing in his hate. Instead, God pursues him and invests in Jonah until somewhere along the way, God transforms Jonah so that he gets it. And you know that he got it because he talks about his experiences with God. He communicates them to others. He writes them down. They become part of scripture that other people read and it's in that way that God now impacts the larger society. He confronts Israel 
and he confronts them on the tribalism that they had in Jonah's day, the nationalism that valued one group of people, the Israelites, above the Assyrians, and he did this by first confronting that in one man. God then does something wonderful. He puts this book in scripture so that it continues down through the ages to impact other generations of people, other generations who would be tempted to take the, the immensity of God's kingdom and shrink it down to the special interests of their own group. One person's experience with God, Jonah's, has a ripple effect that then literally impacts societies across the globe and down through history. God changes individual people who in turn change the world. Or to put it in the way that J.I. Packer does in his book, Knowing God, the gospel does bring us solutions to these problems. He's talking about the problems of suffering and injustice. The gospel does bring us solutions to these problems but it does so by first solving the deepest of all human problems, the problem of man's relation with his maker. And unless we make it plain that the solution of these former problems, the larger ones in society, depends on the settling of this latter one, your issue with God. Unless we make it plain that the solution of these former problems depends on the settling of this latter one, we're misrepresenting the message and becoming false witnesses of God. The gospel changes people. That's what Jesus came to do. But once he changes those people, those people go out and they change the world around them. The corollary is also true. If they're not changing the world, then they themselves have not been changed in the way that God would change them. That's what you see God doing in the book of Jonah. He's working to realign one person with himself to impact many others. And the way that he does this really ought to give you a lot of hope for yourself. Because the mechanism by which God works is not some super special, esoteric kind of activity that's reserved just for a select few. God does not come down from heaven and confront Jonah directly. He doesn't call him out on his racist attitudes with some divine word. And that's wonderful because if God did, then you'd be very tempted to say, well, of course, Jonah was a prophet. That's what prophets do. They get special words from God. I don't, so I guess I'm, I'm kind of stuck. I can't really grow then because I'm not going to be able to see the sin that's tripping me up. Here's the good news. You're not stuck because that's not how God works to change people. It's not what God did to change Jonah. Instead, he took what Jonah should already have known, what God had said in Scripture already, that you should love your neighbor as yourself, and all God does is place Jonah in a different setting changes his world in order to live out what he already knows, to apply that word with the Assyrians, not just with the Israelites. And it's in that very ordinary experience of living out God's word in this world that Jonah is exposed, that his deep-seated hatred comes up to the surface, his very small view of God's kingdom comes out, and the reality that his faith is just not up to living in this larger world is suddenly evident. In other words, God exposes and grows his prophet in the same way that he exposes and grows you and me by putting us into situations that call us to growth in our faith. That's how we grow in grace. Okay, all of that was last week's message. For this morning, what happens if you feel like you're not growing? What happens if you feel like one of the people that I spoke with this past week, if you say, well, you know, I, I feel like I'm kind of stuck in the middle of chapter four. 
Like you're not really ready to write the book yet because you're still stuck in the middle wrestling through. It's a very hopeful book when you step back and you see the end result. But what if you don't see results yet in your life? What if your world is really difficult right now? If you're seeing things in yourself that you don't really like, what happens though if your response is more like Jonah's in the middle of chapter four, not afterward when he's willing to talk about it? What if you're not happy to see what God is showing you? Or you're not interested in talking with God about what you see? Or frankly, what happens if you'd be happier if God would just leave you alone and stop irritating you? What do you do if that's where you are? On some level, you know that's not a good place to be. On another level, you just don't care. You feel stuck. You feel like you don't have the power to get yourself unstuck. Again, I think you'd feel very much like Jonah. You realize that he does not have the resources in himself to deal with the world in the way that it is. <laughs> you, you think about what he does here. He walks outside the city and he builds a shelter for himself, but it's a shelter that can't keep the sun off his head and it can't protect him from the east wind. In other words, what can Jonah do with his own resources? He can get himself into trouble. He can put himself into difficult situations, but he can't get himself out. His resources are not enough to deal with this larger world that God's put him in. And you have to realize then that yours aren't either. When you're stuck in the middle of chapter four, you need something bigger than yourself to get out. When your sin is exposed, when your faith is not enough to deal with this larger world, what do you have to do? You have to look outside yourself. You have to see what is God doing and why is he doing it? And when you do that, then you suddenly discover you have resources. You discover in this chapter, you have five resources that you need when you're stuck. What are these things that you'll find? You'll find number one, that God is committed to you. He's not going away. Number two, you'll find that he's creative in how he approaches you. Number three, you'll find that he will challenge you and that he'll challenge the way that you're thinking. But number four, you'll find that he does that out of compassion for you, out of concern. And fifth, you're gonna discover that what he really wants is simply a conversation with you, a chance to reconnect, a chance to engage in relationship. Those are five things that you need if you're stuck this morning. You need, God, you need God's commitment, you need his creativity, you need his challenge, his compassion, and you need to have a conversation with him. Five things that'll help you escape the stuckness of chapter four. So first, God is committed to you. God asks Jonah a question, verse four, do you do well to be angry? And verse five, Jonah ignores him. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. You think to yourself, that's suicidal. Consider the Assyrians for just a moment. Jonah just warned them, chapter three, verse four, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, what do you think would happen if the Assyrians had ignored Jonah's warning, just turned their back on it and walked away? They'd have been overthrown. They'd have been destroyed, wiped out because they rejected God's attempt to get them to see what they had to see in order to change. Now, God has just done that with his prophet. He's tried to warn him. Jonah is not on the same page with God. God tries to engage him. He says, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah turns his back on God and walks away. And God does not destroy him. He also doesn't ignore him. He doesn't just let him go and live any way that he wants to. Instead, God pursues him, not in some kind of creepy stalker kind of way, but he doesn't let Jonah go off and do whatever he wants. Why is that? 
it's because God is not hands off in his world. He's actively involved in it. He's engaged in it, especially in the lives of his people. He doesn't sit back and just sort of watch us from a distance. He's not catching up on a show. We're not entertainment for him. We're what? We're his children. We're people that he relates to. And because we're his children, he's involved. And he doesn't quit being involved just because you throw a temper tantrum and don't feel, feel like talking to him. In other words, we have to get rid of this idea that we are more invested in our relationship with God than he is. It's a wrong idea that we're more active than he is, that, that we care more about relating than he does. Now, if I gave you a, a theological test, you would never say that. But if I listen to you talk about your relationship with God and what that's been like over the past several months, would I have heard more about how he comes to you or about how you go to him? See, if you're like me, I'd probably hear more about what you're doing than about what he's doing. And on one level, that just makes sense. Lots of us have been taught what we need to do in order to have a personal relationship with Christ. We've listened to sermons, we've read books, we've gone to seminars, we've been discipled on what we need to do. And there's nothing wrong with understanding our part of this relationship. But when the primary focus is on, here's how to study the Bible, here's how to pray, here's how to seek God, when that's the focus, here's what you need to do, then there's this subtle message that gets communicated that says, we are more active than God is. That what God did is what? It's mostly historical. He made it possible, he opened the door so that we could have a relationship with him. But having done that, now he just sort of sits back and waits because the primary responsibility is on us to run with what he's already done. Let me be clear, nobody intends to say that. But it's very easy for us to end up with this picture of God as just sort of this recluse someone who's waiting to see how much energy you're gonna invest in the relationship while he decides whether or not he should reciprocate. And if that's the picture that you have of a relationship with God, you start to lose confidence that he's actually interested in a relationship with you. You start to believe that you are more interested in a relationship with him than he is. This snapshot from chapter four blows away that kind of thinking. Jonah has just decided he wants nothing to do with God. And God doesn't walk away. God doesn't sit back. Instead, God moves forward. He swings into action. That's because once God calls you into a relationship with himself, he will not leave you alone. You can count on it. You didn't start this relationship. You didn't make yourself part of his family. He didn't adopt you and make you his child. Why? Because you were so irresistible. That's actually not true. You weren't irresistible. You're more like Jonah. You're as difficult as he was. I'm as difficult as Jonah is. But God brought you in because he wanted you. You didn't start this relationship, and that's good news. Because it means you can't end it either. He will pursue you because he's the one who committed first. He committed himself to you. Now, if you're wrestling with that, and I know some of you are, if it's something that you would like to believe, but it's something that you have trouble with, I wanna recommend a resource for you um, that I think will really help you. Uh, 
I'm struggling here already. You can help. This is hard for me because I wrote the resource. But I think it's important. I think it will be helpful. It's a book called Assurance, Resting in God's Salvation. It's a one-month collection of very short devotionals, 31 altogether, one for each day. And they all address the same question, how secure is our relationship with God really? And I wrote it, imagining someone who says, I don't have any question that God loves people. It's me that I'm not so sure about. I know God loves people in general. I'm just not sure about me in particular. Now, I've just said I hate promoting my own stuff, so here's how I'm gonna get around feeling incredibly awkward about this. We wanna make this book available to you free of charge. You don't have to buy it. I'm not going to make anything off of it. And you can either email me directly. You can contact us through the contact link on our webpage, renewalmainline.org. Just ask for the book on assurance, and we'll be happy to send it to you. You can think about it as an early Christmas present. And you don't have to be a member of Renewal. You don't have to be a regular attender. If you're struggling to know that God loves you, that he's committed to you, then we want to help you. We want to help you know that much better, that he absolutely loves you. We want you to know and believe deep down that once he's committed, he stays committed. That's point number one, God is committed to his people. Point two, God is creative in the way that he pursues his people. If you've ever tried to help an angry person, <laughs> you know how hard they are to help. They put up this wall, there's this hardness uh, that resists getting help. And it doesn't make any sense, but I found this in my own life. I found it with angry people that I've talked to. Angry people like being angry. It does something for them. It does several things for them, actually. It, number one, it, it insulates them. It keeps them from having to look at themselves or having to deal with themselves because their anger is focused outward. So they don't have to have that inward look. But it also keeps them from having to adjust to other people or having to adjust to a changing world. They can just be angry because the world's not supposed to be that way. Other people are not supposed to be that way. And it justifies why they're not doing anything, why they're staying stuck, why they've put up this wall and are hiding behind it. Now, God just got a taste of that from Jonah. He's tried to invite Jonah from out from behind the wall by asking him in verse four, do you do well, do, you do well to be angry? And Jonah's not having any of it. The wall is up. The hardness has set in. So what does God do? God gets creative. He doesn't keep doing the same thing. Instead, he figures out a way around Jonah's defenses. He decides not to keep talking. If you've ever talked to an angry person, they're not interested. You realize that doesn't do a whole lot in that moment. So God stops talking, but God does not give up. Instead, he crafts a new experience for Jonah. He gives him a plant, something that has absolutely nothing to do with the Ninevites, something that has nothing to do with his hatred of them or his unwillingness to do what God's called him to do. Instead, it's just a plant, something completely disconnected from everything else that he's going through. Or at least that's what it seems like until the plant dies. And then Jonah's upset again. Only this time it's a different kind of upsetness. Earlier, he was upset because something was spared. Nineveh was spared. This time, however, he's upset because something is not spared. Something's destroyed. And so God again asks, verse 9, 
Same question as he did before, but this time with a little twist. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Is there something inside of you that can get upset over some destruction in some way, in some form, somewhere in the universe? And this time Jonah answers, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. To which God says, verse 10, you pity the plant. You have feelings of compassion inside of you. There are things in creation that you do care about. You're not simply one-dimensional, not simply interested in destruction. Jonah, I'm like that too. We have something here in common. He's found common ground in the middle of Jonah's anger. God will go on to talk about how misplaced Jonah's feelings of pity are, but they're there. They exist. And the hope is that if they can exist in this one area, maybe that area can grow to include others as well. What did God do? God got behind the wall. And he helped Jonah discover compassion, something other than anger. It's the first crack in the wall that he's hiding behind, the first opening that allows for some engagement. If God is committed to you, he'll also be creative with you when you're stuck. Don't expect him to reach you the same way that he's reached you before. Instead, you should expect what you should get you should expect him to sneak up on you, to surprise you, to get around the defenses that you've put up to keep him out. Look for him. Look for those other kind of ways because they're God trying to find a way to re-engage with you, to reconnect with you, rather than to keep you and he at arm's length. So number one, look for God to be committed to you. Number two, look for him to be creative. Third, expect God to challenge you. Think about all that he does to, re to reach Jonah. God literally reshapes the world. He alters reality to get through to Jonah. And he does it in ways that are not always nice. Did you notice that word appoint in verse six? Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. We have to get out of this mindset that God just sort of winds the world up and, and lets it go. He absolutely does not do that. We tend to believe that because we've bought into our culture's way of speaking. Our scientific culture talks about a natural world that is governed by natural laws. It's a, a philosophy called naturalism. It's a world that just runs on autopilot. And if we buy into that, we allow that thinking to affect how we see God. Scripture doesn't speak that way. Scripture speaks about the whole universe, not only as being created by God, but also governed by God, managed by him, subject to him, and to what he wants to accomplish. And so God appoints things. He makes things happen. We already saw this back in chapter 1, verse 17, when he appointed a fish to rescue Jonah up off the bottom of the sea. Here he appoints a plant to shade his head. God sovereignly moves things around his world in order to save and rescue his people. And he sovereignly moves things around his world that aren't as nice as well. Verse seven, he appoints a plant to attack, I'm sorry, a worm to attack the plant and wither it. Verse eight, he appoints a scorching wind out of the east. It's sort of like a desert, uh, dry wind. And he does that appointing so that Jonah's basically suffering from sun and heat stroke there. God does things that get Jonah's attention in ways that Jonah does not want. 
But that bring Jonah to a place where he's finally willing to engage with God rather than just show God his back. And some of us really need to hear this. Maybe this is you. Maybe you've said at some point, I just don't get it. Why isn't God doing anything in my life? I hate what's happening to me. My life's a mess. Nothing is right. Why isn't he doing anything about it? Let me gently suggest that's the wrong question. And the real question is, why are you so certain that he has nothing to do with any of the things you're facing? Have you ever stopped to consider that maybe he's the one behind the mess? That maybe he's the one to blame for why your life is not working out the way that you had planned for it to work out? Are you certain that he's not working overtime behind the scenes, crafting an experience that's going to make you look at something you don't want to look at. Are you certain he's not doing that? You're certain that he's not involved in your life. See, the God that you learn here in Scripture is a God who commits himself to you, and he's not afraid to involve himself in your world to bring you to where he knows you need to be. And he's not afraid to upset you in the process. He will, chapter 1, involve himself in your world to appoint a fish to save you. Chapter 4, he'll give you a plant to shade your head. But he's also the one in chapter 1 who will hurl a great wind on the sea when you're trying to run away. Or he'll cut the shade out that you love so much more than you love what he's doing in the world. When you're stuck, when you d see what you don't want to see and you refuse to deal with God, expect God to challenge you by making your word world challenging. But also expect him to challenge your beliefs about the world. Expect him to challenge your logic of what you think is right. Because when you're stuck, when you refuse to engage with God, when you feel justified in being stuck, you need to be challenged. Jonah's in trouble because he's locked himself into a Jonah-centric world. And he measures the goodness of things with respect to himself, with respect to how they affect him. So a plant to shade his head, verse 6, then he's exceedingly glad. His enemies repenting, God not destroying them, verse 1, then he's exceedingly angry. A worm eating his plant, then he's angry, angry enough to die. See, his world, it, it, it revolves around himself. That's the poison that's coursing through his spiritual veins. He measures what goes on in the world based on how it impacts him. So other people, eternal beings, with lives of their own, thoughts of their own, loves of their own, it doesn't enter his mind that they're on the same scale of being as he is. He sees himself and what he wants as so much more valuable than they are. And so God challenges his logic. He says, verse 10, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You didn't labor for this plant. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. You didn't create it. You didn't put immense time and energy and thought into bringing it to being, and it didn't last. It was short-lived, transient. But this unearned, unproduced, temporary thing has your heart. You pity it. That's what gets your compassion God goes on, do you want to know what gets mine? Verse 11, should not I pity Nineveh, 
Should I not pity the people that I labored over, that I created? People whose lives, once conceived, will now literally last for eternity. Should I not care for them? Should they not grab my heart? What did God just do? He has challenged Jonah's logic by taking a risk. God shared his own heart. It's not a safe thing to do with an angry person. Instead of putting up his own wall, he's opened his heart to Jonah. And he's told him, here's what I value in this world. And in doing that, it's obvious that what God values is so much better, so much more important than what Jonah values. He's taken Jonah's upside down world and turned it right side up. But he did that by inviting Jonah to see that this amazing, immense God who spins tempests from his fingertips, who destroys shade-bearing plants, this powerful God has an incredible tender-heartedness toward everything that he's made, including the Assyrians, despite all of the violence that they've done to his world. When you're stuck, expect God to remain committed to you, to be creative in how he engages you, to challenge you, but expect him to do that, why? Because he's tender-hearted, he's compassionate, he's concerned about you, he pities you. Again, think about Nineveh. God doesn't see Nineveh through a one-dimensional lens. It's a city that is violent beyond belief, it glories in its violence, it terrorizes the ancient world, but God sees it as so much more than that. It's also, verse 11, a great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. It's a great city. It's a city full of people, full of images of God. Images of God who are morally adrift. That's what not being able to tell your right hand from your left means. They're unable to make moral judgments. They thought that the violence that they were engaged in, they thought that was fine. They were spiritually blind. God sees them spiritually blind and he cares about what he sees. It's a great city, but it's more actually than just the people. Nineveh was an economic powerhouse. It's what the cattle signify. God doesn't throw them in there because he likes animals. It's a way of saying it's a very wealthy, very rich, resource-filled city. It's full of things that God gave them to use that would do a world of good if they were unleashed with God's purposes in mind. It was a great city. It's more than that. It was a cultured city. It contained public squares, parks, botanical gardens, a zoo, library. It was a great city and God cared about it. He didn't want it destroyed. He wanted it rescued, redeemed. He had pity on it. It's a word as one of the commentators puts it that means he had tears in his eyes for the city. Tears for the people in it. He's concerned over what he's labored over, over what he's created, over the people in it who will last forever. He's concerned about the great city, but he's far more concerned for his prophet. For all of its greatness, for all of its bigness, Nineveh gets a very short warning, it's just five words in the original. Jonah got a whole lot more than five words. God talked with him, pursued him, reshaped the world just for his sake multiple times. He's invested way more into Jonah than he has into Nineveh. Why? Because he has less concern for Jonah, less pity, fewer tears in his eyes? You realize, no, he's got more. God has labored over Jonah and created him so that he'll last forever. 
but not like this. Not broken like this. Compassionless. Hardened. That's not good. It's not good for Jonah. It's not good for anyone that Jonah talks to. See, if God is compassionate toward everything that he's made, but Jonah isn't, then Jonah can't speak for him. He doesn't know that part of God. He can't be God's prophet because he can't accurately represent God and his character. And so God decides Jonah has to grow. And the more that you read scripture, the more you realize that that agenda with Jonah that he would grow to understand something that is essential to God in order to communicate that to other people, that agenda is not unique to Jonah. It's how God works with all of the people who represent him. They all have to learn the heart of God from the inside before they communicate that to anyone else. So Abraham has to learn from the inside. He has to experience what it's like to sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son, to pay for sin before that can get written down and communicate to us just a little bit of the agony that God the Father will go through as he offers up his only son, Jesus. King David has to learn from the inside. He has to experience the misery of having a child. His son Absalom reject him and want him dead, cut out of his life so that he can take over. David has to learn that in order to communicate a little bit of what it's like for God to create us, but then have us cut him out of our lives, and in a very important sense, to, for God to be absolutely brokenhearted over that. Jeremiah has to learn, he has to experience what it's like to have a ministry of calling people to love the Lord who loves them over decades and decades and decades and have them never respond positively. Jeremiah has to learn that so that he can communicate what it's like for God to call people continually, only to be ignored and then hated for taking the trouble to do that. Hosea has to experience the heartbreak of binding himself to an adulterous wife so that he can communicate what God experiences as you and I are spiritually adulterous over and over and over. You could keep on running with the list. God constructs situations for his messengers so that they learn firsthand what it's like to be in his shoes, so that they can accurately convey him and his heart to others, which means that Jonah has to learn God's compassion for everyone that he's made, including those who hate his people. Jonah has to learn compassion for the sake of ministry, but it's even bigger than, than that. He has to learn compassion in order to be human. He can't be an image of God. He can't be a true reflection of God if he has no compassion toward those who wrong him or who want to wrong him. You realize he can't be human. He can't image God because that's what God is like. God has compassion for those who sin against him. So to be an image of God means that you have to have that kind of compassion as well. And Jonah can't be fully human unless this compassion that is central to God is also central to himself. It's not just that he can't have a formal ministry. It's that he can't be human until he fully, wholeheartedly embraces this part of God with joy. And so God commits himself to helping Jonah become more human. You should expect that same commitment from God in your own life as well. Out of his concern, out of his pity, out of his tears for you. 
which sounds amazing. If you're in the, stuck in the middle of chapter four, you have a God who is committed to finding creative ways to challenge you out of compassion. And all you have to do in order to get in on this is what? It's very simple. You just have to talk to him. That's all God is gunning for in chapter four. He wants a conversation. He's doing his best to engage Jonah. He does his best to engage you in a conversation. All you have to do is respond. It's that simple and it's that hard. That's actually where I think the problem is for many of us. Like Jonah, we just don't want to. Think about your life right now. I would bet that if you're anything like most of the people I talk to, there's something really hard in it. Frankly, I haven't found a single person in the last several months who doesn't have something hard going on in their lives. God has put you in some hard places, places that are personally, intricately designed to get you to move toward him. Let me ask you then, how are you responding to that hard place? I know how some of you are responding because you tell me you're working longer hours. You're distracting yourself with videos. You're scrolling through social media endlessly. You're shopping online like it's going out of style. You're feeding your soul on the latest news updates and then you wonder why you feel cranky, why you feel depressed, run down, worn out, exhausted. Look at the way that you're responding. Ask yourself, how is that doing anything different from walking away from God? Refusing to talk to him while you build a shelter for yourself that cannot protect you from the harshness of this world. If that's where you are, is it really all that confusing that God's ways feel so dull to you? So uninteresting, so small, so lacking in life. God calls you to do amazing things. He calls you to love your enemy, to lay down your life for your friends, to sacrifice what you would like to have out of life so that you can give others what they need. These are wonderful, glorious, these are countercultural ways of living. It's what heaven's gonna be like. And inside, I'm afraid that many of us think about those things and we go, eh, we sigh. We say that feels small, it's hard. There has to be something bigger, something better, something more exciting. If you're ignoring him, finding your, yourself, you're your feeding yourself on other things, what have you done? You've taught yourself to want something different out of life. You've taught yourself to have a different logic than what beats in the heart of God. And then you wonder why God does, doesn't seem all that interesting to you. Why you have no spiritual vitality? Why you have no power, no hope, no optimism, no joy? Here's where jo Jesus becomes really special. There's a contrast. Jonah went out of the city of Nineveh, that great city with its own culture and logic that had nothing to do with God. And Jonah sat to the east of the city. His eyes were dry, his heart was hard, and he sat there to see what would become of the city. Hundreds of years later, Jesus came to a different city. He came to Jerusalem. He didn't stay outside of the city, he went in. But as he went in, he cried out to that city. Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
He came to the city with tears in his eyes, concerned about the city, compassionate toward the people in the city, the people who for centuries had ignored God's warning to them. He didn't go outside of the city to see what would happen to it. Instead, he stayed in the city with the people, even though he knew that would mean his death. At the time that he cried over the city, he told his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He cried over the city and he was not embraced by the city. Instead, he was arrested, mocked, beaten, and led back out of the city to a small hill where he was crucified. He didn't go outside the city to see what would happen to it, to see if God would destroy it. He went outside the city to be destroyed himself instead of the city. He went outside the city to save the city, to save you. And that means you need to turn to him and talk with him and have the conversation that he's longing to have with you. If you don't know what to say and you just feel stuck, you don't know what to talk about, talk about the thing you're trying to avoid. God sets all of this up because Jonah is avoiding something, trying to duck his anger. What are you ducking? Try talking to him about the thing that you've been refusing to talk about. Talk to him about the thing you don't want to talk about with anyone else, the thing that you keep trying to hide from everyone else, the thing you keep shifting attention away from. God would not leave Jonah alone with that thing because it was killing him. It was keeping him from being human. You can trust this committed, creative, challenging, compassionate God to not leave you alone with it either. Talk to him. Let's talk to him now. Lord Jesus, thank you that you did not come the first time with judgment. Thank you that you did not come the first time to destroy. Thank you that you came with tears in your eyes, compassion for us. Lord, thank you. I'm gonna thank you in advance for my brothers and my sisters, for myself. Thank you for the many times that you involve yourself in our worlds to change them, shape them in ways that are uncomfortable for us that move us back to you. Lord God, do more. Don't let us walk away from you. But Lord, do that helping us to see your tears. Help us to see them and trust you and trust your purposes for us. In Jesus' name, amen.